You're listening to Soundwise Podcast, a show hosted by Alex in Serbia and Vlada in Poland. Each week we cover a different artist or band and engage in open, spontaneous debates and discussions about specific parts of their discographies. Our goal is to expand their musical horizons and cover a great range of genres and styles. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash soundwisepod and on social media at soundwisepod. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Soundrise Podcast. Hi Alex, how are you doing today? Hello Vlada, afternoon to you. Um, I was really looking forward to this this weekend. Uh, happy Easter everybody and I'm also excited about this episode because uh, we're today going to talk about a music genre that we, that we haven't talked about in a while and I think... It is also something that me and Vlada um, have debates about, you know, heated debates. So I'm really looking forward to it. All right. I'm also very excited because today I decided to to choose one of my favorite bands. It's not what I usually do. I usually try to choose someone I either like, but I'm not very familiar with or someone new, but this time I really wanted to talk about Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And I think I partly got inspired by Alex's post in our discussion group that you can find on Facebook, Soundrise Podcast Discussion Group. So please join the group. We need, we need you. We need participants. We need people asking questions about music, debating music. We want to grow this group the same way we're growing our podcast. So check it out. And Alexander posted something about prog rock. Um, and Alexander, uh, I think you have a somewhat ambivalent attitude towards prog. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of right, actually. Um, here's the thing. So prog rock... Um, the first time that I heard of prog rock was probably the band um, Tool. And I listened to some tracks by Tool, even some albums, I think the newest album, and I just I just never liked them. I, I just always, uh, you know, uh, I always find them kind of uh, gimmicky, annoying, too pretentious. And I think it's kind of the case with their fans. I don't want to offend anyone, but... It's just an impression, just like I did with, uh, with, uh, with, with the blues when we discussed. Please Muddy don't Water. offend so... any fans, particularly <laughs> if you have a prog fan as your co-host. Yeah. So, here, here's my general take on prog rock. I respect, you know, their craft. I know that they are really good at what they're doing. They are fantastic instrumentalists. They are. They are jazzers, and you know that says a lot. But uh, on the other hand, I just can't get really in love with that kind of music. I never think of playing that music, you know, on Spotify or, or somewhere else. I I don't get inspired by it. I don't really discover a lot about prog rock. So I'm kind of I don't know. There's there's some sort of distance between me and and prog rock and prog music in general. I would say. But, but if I remember correctly, when we did an episode of Vandergraaf Generator, you kind of liked some of this stuff. You thought it was pretty cool, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I can. 
Yeah, yeah, there are some albums and tracks that I can like that sound really good to me. But, you know, the bottom line is that I would never, you know, stick with it. You know, that's that's the problem. That's the issue here. Yeah, but, you know, the thing I wanted to convey also with today's episode is that when it comes to such a big genre as prog rock, uh, we can't really paint all these bands with the same brush. I mean, you mentioned Tool. And now we're talking about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer today. And, and I would say that these two bands are, in, like, incredibly different. Incredibly different in many ways. Even though they, they might have some kind of common denominators, mainly when it comes to their skill as, a, as musicians, experimentation with tempos, with, uh, with more complex music forms. But... Musically speaking, it's like night and day, in my opinion. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, yes, I definitely would. But there is one common thing for all prog rock bands, I would say. It's, you know, how they structure their songs. It's, you know, the, the basic rule of prog rock, in my opinion, is that um, you have a lot of improvisations. Um, you don't have this structure, the rhythm. Uh, it, it, it's not like... They're very structured, actually. They're very structured, unlike jazz, for example, where you have a, a lot of improvisations, right, following the opening theme. Prog rock, for the most part, seems very structured, but it also allows for a lot of improvisation. That's that's my take. I think, yeah, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you, but it's still different from your usual rock, pop tunes, punk you know, all these other genres that have a somewhat unif uniformed approach. Do you get what I mean? I mean, if you if you play... Yeah, I get it. It's more complex. Song, yeah, it's, it's, it's more, more complex. complex. For that reason, you just can't listen to it every day. You know, that's, that's probably... Uh, I mean, it depends on the listener. Things. I can. I could possibly... I mean, I don't listen to Prague every day, but I could imagine myself listening to nothing but Prague for a month. And I have no problems with that. Oh, goodness. <laughs> goodness. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, let's share a few words about this monumental band that we're talking about today. So Emerson, Lake and Palmer uh, was considered to be a supergroup. And for those not familiar with that term, uh, a supergroup means uh, a band comprised of members, previous members of other well-known acts and bands, right? So uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there were a lot of supergroups forming. For example, Crosby, Steels, Nash & Young, right? All of these musicians were already acclaimed, already played in very successful acts. The same case is with Emerson, Lake & Palmer. So uh, the band was primarily founded by Lake and Emerson. Greg Lake was initially the original singer of the one and only King Crimson, uh, one of my favorite bands as well. And he he was one of the most important prog bands, right? Yes, definitely. Many say that it was King Crimson who basically invented prog. Now there's a lot of debates about that, but many consider in the court of the Crimson King to be the first real prog rock record and Greg Lake was masterful on that record his vocals his uh, bass playing everything was um, 
just stunningly well performed. So it was a huge loss, a huge blow to King Crimson when he decided to leave the band. Um, he was unhappy with, with uh, the band for some reason, probably some kind of interpersonal relations. And the, the thing was that the Nice, another good band, uh, which had Keith Emerson on the keyboards, was touring at the same time as King Crimson. So, so they were touring together and these two musicians had a lot of opportunities to bond and, and to play together. And uh, when they tried to improvise, they noticed that they had a great chemistry between them. So they decided to form a new band to leave their their uh, other bands and, and start something new, start a new project. So they needed one more guy. You know, they wanted to be a trio at that time, power trios were quite popular, but they had a different idea of a trio, mainly a keyboard-dominated trio as opposed to a guitar-dominated power trio. So they tried to recruit drummers. It was very hard at the beginning. They wanted to, to get Mitch Mitchell from Jimi Hendrix Experience, another fantastic drummer, uh, who I think at that time... Uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience had just disbanded, so he was looking for a new gig. Uh, but for some reason, this never came to fruition. There was also some rumor that they were supposed to jam with Mitch Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix together and form a group with uh, Jimi Hendrix. Um, I don't know how that would come about, what that would look like. That sounds to me like a very weird combination, to be honest. Who knows? Perhaps it would have worked. But it never really came to fruition. And there were so many rumors about this that, according to Greg Lake, were vastly exaggerated. So, the band finally found Carl Palmer, who was suggested uh, by somebody. But Carl Palmer, uh, Carl Palmer at that time was the drummer of another great band called Atomic Rooster. And I have to say that you should all check out these bands, both the Nice, Atomic Rooster, of course, King Crimson, we don't need to say anything about that. It's one of the biggest bands of the 70s of, of the entire history of rock music, but maybe these other two bands are not so well known, particularly the Atomic Rooster, so check them out, especially if you like that kind of heavy uh, early 70s, late 60s sound. You know, if you like the the likes of Black Sabbath, for example, I think you will also enjoy Atomic Rooster. So, um, and we finally got this trio, three great musicians. At first, Palmer was hesitant to, to leave Atomic Rooster, but then after some persuasion, he realized that he had a great shot with these guys. And then they went on to record their debut record, and many people consider their debut alongside uh, in the court of the Crimson King to be basically the record that cemented prog rock on the scene, right? So, so the band went through a very fruitful period between 1970 and 1973-74. They released, I think, uh, four studio records and... Uh, two live albums, one of which is Pictures at the Exhibition, which could also be seen as a, not as a studio record, but as a, or as a new original piece, because it was essentially their interpretation of Musgorsky's 
pictures at exhibition, uh, a great piece of classical music. But uh, at some point, the band was so big and there was so much tension and pressure on them that they took a break, a two or three year break. And when they came back from that break, they were never quite the same. They never really recovered. They kind of meandered. And especially with the rise of punk music, they sort of lost their mojo. And there were also certain pressures on the part of the record company, Atlantic, at that time that really killed off the band. Of course, later on, they had a couple of reunions, released another studio album in 1992, Black Moon, but it was these early years of the band that, that basically uh, is all you need to know about them. Everything outside that, you can check it out, but I think it's not as essential. And this is the period that we're going to cover today. So without any further ado, I would like to start with the debut record, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, so the self-titled record, recorded in 1970. And first I want to hand the microphone to my friend Alex. Alex, I want to hear what you thought about this record. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. First of all, thanks for that fantastic introduction. A really interesting story about uh, this trio. Um, and uh, honestly, no surprise that they all used to play for some other bands, some other successful bands before joining this this group. I mean, you can hear that on all of the records that we're going to discuss today, but no spoilers uh, at this point. So uh, this debut record was, surprisingly enough, um, quite enjoyable for me. Um, so I have my notes and I have to praise, first of all, the musicianship. Right from the get-go, you get to hear how fantastic their bass player is. Um, the opening track, The Barbarian, it's, it, it, it basically is a textbook example of a great bass player. And the one thing that sprung, that, that sprung to my mind when I played the track is, oh, is this really 1970? You know, if, I know that you don't like this phrase, Vlada, but the track really sounded ahead of its time. And you can just tell that a lot of people, a lot of bassists, that is, would later be inspired by this. this oh, I, I this agree album. that so what the... they were doing, sorry to interrupt you, but I agree that what they were doing at that time was ahead of its time because they incorporated so many new elements into the existing, um, into the exi existing templates of rock music, right? So I think you're right about that. Yeah, so I was really, you know, impressed with that and uh, the rest of the instruments as well. Uh, the keyboards were prominent on this record and you can just hear that on, on all the other tracks. But moving on, the second track, for example, has great keyboard, keyboard work and I just like, there's this part around, I think, the fifth minute. So the track is called uh, Take a Pebble and it's uh, 12 minutes long. And somewhere around the fifth minute, you just hear this beautiful part with the guitar. It's kind of atmospheric, you know, pretty simple, slows things down and, you know, towards towards the end of the track. I mean, this track is really special. It has so many layers that you can just enjoy it. You, you know, I think th this, this might sound far-fetched, but I think Take a Pebble could be an EP on itself. You know, yeah, with, uh, with so I... many... I'm so glad you singled out that track because I think it's my absolute favorite, not just on this record, but in their entire body of work. Um, 
I think it's it's for me. I, I know this is highly subjective, but this is one of the best tracks ever recorded. Uh, there's just something majestic about it. Um, it, it's, it is very reminiscent of the stuff on In the Court of the Crimson King, mainly because of Greg Lake. You know, the melody, the, there's this sense of an epic ballad. It's very dramatic, at the same time very sophisticated. His vocal delivery is fantastic throughout the song. And uh, you know, uh, you mentioned that beautiful part with the acoustic guitar. I just love that uh, that instrumental section, with, both with the piano and the acoustic guitar. And then there's that part where you hear like where you hear hand claps, and that gives it a very lively atmosphere. It feels very, uh, very real, very emotional, very. Mm, I'm kind, kind of, of lost. Entertaining for for the audience, right? Yeah, like it, I'm kind of lost for words how to describe this, but it feels like you're in in the song. It feels like you're right there in some kind of tavern listening to the band. It's a very resonant. <laughs> yes, of course. It's it's a very a very vivid track in that sense, and I, I love that about it. Sometimes prog rock can sound very alienating, which I think is why you cannot get into some of the tracks or some of the bands. But in this case, it sounds very warm, very tangible. And that's what I love about this song. And uh, everything is so subtle and beautiful. There's no access. The instrumentalists are amazing, but they never go overboard in this case. Do you share the same sentiments? Yeah. Yes, I think even for a guy that is not into prog rock, I think this album is totally accessible totally acceptable you know for my taste and for that reason i can praise it and what's also interesting about take a pebble there are only two tracks on this record that were both written and composed by greg lake take a pebble and lucky man and both of those tracks are i think one of my highlights so he was definitely a very very important part of this try this trio right Yes, and I think uh, what he brought to the band is this melodic sensibility. You know, he was very talented at writing what you would say, in this context at least, are pop tunes. You know, like Lucky Man is the pop song of this record. And it was yeah, a huge definitely. hit. It sounds like a... Definitely, definitely. I just wanted to say that it is kind of poppy and it sounds like a typical 60s song with that with that singing yeah, you like have the it, same impression. Yeah, it, it's not even like you would if it was on its own outside this record. You would even call it a prog rock song because it's like it's a very beautiful short uh, '60s kind of ballad. However, I, I find I find it very fascinating also because of the instrumental section near the end, the infamous Moog solo by Keith Emerson that was done in a single take. So that's the the first take, and that ended up on the record. That wonderful solo, which has some kind of experimentation with pitch, right? He he changes the pitch of the tones, and it sounds so awesome. I think people have been floored by that little solo since they first heard the track, and then uh, music aficionados still talk about it. Very exciting. Another great thing about that track is that Greg Lake wrote the lyrics when he was 12 years old. So imagine, and I think the lyrics, uh, while they do sound like something wow. that, that was written by a young person, I think they sound 
uh, excellent, uh, especially within the context of the song. And it goes to show how talented this this man was. Uh, quite a quite a talent, both singing, playing, songwriting. He had it all. Even though, uh, interestingly enough, he didn't really write a lot of lyrics for Emerson, Lick and Palmer. They had an external uh, lyrics writer, uh, Peter Sinfield, and this guy wrote a lot of their tracks. So that's that's another interesting thing. But. Uh, Let's just mention other tracks here because I feel like this record is great throughout. There's not a single weak moment for me. Uh, so we had, uh, as you said, The Barbarian. It's it's another interpretation of a classical music piece by Bella Bartok, a famous composer. And you know what I like about it is the way they synthesize classical music and rock. They make it so heavy, almost like heavy metal. You know, there's like, it, it, and it also goes to show that you don't need prominent guitar to to play heavy music. What what did you think about that? Totally agree. I think they, just like you said, you know, heavy metal. You know, heavy metal came. Uh, slightly later and that's why probably that's why i thought that this track sounded ahead of its time they just made it heavy made it electric and i think they did a good job yeah yeah for sure and uh the knife edge is another similar track albeit this one has lyrics and it also sounds very dark very sinister again they incorporated a classical piece uh by uh leos janacek a Czech composer, and you know, uh, I guess I can only imagine how classical musicians viewed uh, this music at the time. They probably thought it was sacrilegious, but I feel it's a great take on classical music, adding all these heavy rock instruments. And uh, the one thing that never ceases to fascinate me is how well Keith Emerson plays classical music and also jazzy stuff as well. He's so versatile, he's so diverse, and his playing is such a joy to listen to, especially on this record, which uh, while he does use organ and uh, synthesizers at times, it's primarily dominated by piano, and I really love his piano playing. Also, The Three Fates is a great piece. And this is a classical piece, but it was written by Emerson himself, and it sounds like right on the money. A great piece, great keyboard work there. Just so much versatility in his playing. I can't praise him enough. What, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I wanted to say at the beginning of discussing this, this band, um, I wanted to say that it's kind of mind-blowing that these guys, this is actually a trio, you know, there are so many layers and so many different sounds and uh, so many contributions that you would say, oh, this is probably a big group, you know, everyone has something to add. No, this is basically three guys and each of them had a lot to offer. That's that's my yeah, general me, take on, on the band. And there's a lot of overdubs, right? Like you get occasional guitar playing by Greg Lake, which is so subtle and beautiful. And uh, we will hear more of it on other records as well. Uh, Carl Palmer, he has his own piece that he wrote together with Emerson Tank, where he shows his skills. It was his showpiece 
on this record, and many people don't like this track because they don't like drum solos, but I think it's it's really a thrill to listen to it as well. It kind of fits fits in with other stuff, and of course, uh, as we said, the record ends with Lucky Man, a great, great single, probably the tune that propelled them to stardom. Uh, because these other tracks may not be as accessible to an average listener. So, uh, Alex, is there anything you would like to add about this great debut record by Emerson, Lake and Palmer? Finally, I would say that I really like uh, the idea of incorporating these singles and uh, pops, pop songs. You know, you have these long tracks uh, that you know, come from classical music that feature a lot of improvisation and you just need to focus on it. They just also added this Lucky Man song and that's the thing with the rest of the records that uh, we're going to discuss. So that's kind of it. And I would now like to give uh, my rating and my favorite track. So uh, there isn't just one standout track here. Dear listeners, but I have to pick Take a Pebble. It's the second track. It's uh, the longest track as well, but it offers a lot, so you won't waste your time listening to it. And um, the rating is, I think, 8. 8 out of 10. So now I would like, Vlada, you to tell us about your impressions. Well, I, I will definitely rate it higher than that. I think this is one of the records that I love going back to it's always been my favorite Emerson, Lake and Palmer record. It's just something majestic about it. I think every time I hear Keith Emerson play piano here, I just get floored. It's so uh, it's so masterful and yet so emotionally resonant. There I use the phrase. Uh, and Take a Pebble is one of my all-time favorite tracks, so I will choose that as my highlight, even though everything here is pretty amazing i don't think this has a single weak moment and i will give it 9.5 for that reason um, i think that every fan of 70s rock music or 60s rock music should check out this record it's a monumental piece of music and it's one of the first times that classical music and rock music were so successfully blended together i think this is an example of how how you can break the limitations of the genre extend extend your field of interest into other genres, incorporate them into a unique musical vision. And this is, I think, primarily due to Keith Emerson, who I feel is the true leader of the band. However, Greg Lake shouldn't be underestimated either with his songwriting, his uh, hooks that he brings to the music that make the music instantly accessible. This is why they sold, I don't know, 48 millions of records, I think. And, of course, Carl Palmer, one of the best drummers in rock music, for sure. And when you hear his drumming here, you will know why. Everything is so precise here, and I think that it's definitely a record that you should check out. All right, so, Alexander, now I have to tell you, uh, it was hard to choose three records, because, as I said, the early period was very fruitful. And uh, there was uh, another great record between this record and trilogy that we're going to talk about. This record is called Tarkus, and by many fans it's considered to be the best record of the band. However, I decided to skip over it because uh, 
in my personal opinion, as great as that record is, I kind of prefer the record that we're going to talk about. So I wanted to talk about Trilogy mainly because it's sort of underrated. It's sandwiched between two monumental records by the band Tarkus and Brain Salad Surgery that we're going to talk about later on. So I wanted to give it some love and talk about it. So first, what did you think about this record? How does it compare to the first record? What do you think? How has the band progressed in the meantime? Well, that's pretty surprising. I didn't know that this was an underrated record. So I think that this record is more accessible. And I just want to give a positive rating for, for that reason. Uh, doesn't mean that it is necessarily a better record than the previous one that we discussed, but it is, it, it is definitely more accessible and... Um, I'm just really surprised that it didn't get that much love from from the from the music fans. So uh, the thing here is, a lot of tracks have this standard length, you know, four minutes, five minutes. You have some longer tracks here here and there, but um, it, it it kind of it kind of sounds like a mainstream record. I don't want this to sound bad. It sounds like a good rock record. Prague Rock, that is. Uh, again, you have a great opening track. It's called the, uh, the Endless Enigma Part 1. Great punchy track. And then all, all the other tracks are good as well, especially the instrumentals. That's what I also like about this band. It's the instrumentals. You have Hoedown. You have Ebenez Bolero. Don't want to take anything away from the vocal part, but instrumentals are really special because, uh, you know, I... As a music fan, I am really uh, into, you know, the instruments, the music. Sometimes it's more important to me than the singing. Obviously, it depends on the song. Oh, that's interesting, uh, given that you don't have much love for jazz. Well, maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's, the you know, it's the question of time. And I have to say that, you, you know, you can hear some positive comments from me about uh, about this band so maybe maybe just maybe we are slowly getting into this um we'll see uh, so okay back to the record uh moving on i think i also have to think out the sheriff it sounded it sounded like another genre I, I can't really recall it's not easy to pick but it sounded re- very experimental and you can just see how diverse their um ideas were so uh the sheriff hold down yeah i wanted um, to say something about yeah i wanted to to say something about these songs that you mentioned but first um i want to get back to the way the record starts with the endless enigma that you mentioned was a great track and i absolutely agree and uh it has so many different elements uh it's one of the band's trademark songs, and for good reason. kind of starts with this sort of avant-garde intro, very weird, with piano, but it's, it's at the same time very interesting. It really draws you in, and then it just kicks into this very catchy organ part. And once the vocal melody comes in, it's very dignified, very classical, sort of. So such an epic song with so many elements, little things like at one point you hear the bells ring. Of course, there's a middle part which is called the fugue and it's a great instrumental piece by Emerson. So yeah, the the record really starts on a high note 
a very diverse. Emerson is all over the place, a bit of piano, a bit of organ, a bit of synth. Everything adds so much color to the songs. But then uh, you mentioned these songs like The Sheriff and Hold Down. And uh, I need to say that I have somewhat mixed feelings about The Sheriff. And you know, the, the thing about that song is that on almost every record from this period, including Tarkus and Brain Salad Surgery, the band includes one piece which is kind of whimsical and sort of sounds uh, very, you know, like uh, wild, wild west music, western cowboy music. And The Sheriff is one of those songs, and it's probably the best one. There you go, yeah. The best one at that. But what I don't like about it is that it sort of breaks the immersion from these grand pieces like The Endless Enigma that have this kind of uh, depth that only classical music can bring when it comes to instrumentation. If you heard some kind of thud in the background, that was my phone falling down. Yes, yeah, so I was yeah, yeah, I was a bit overexcited about this tune, so I started <laughs> flailing with my uh, hands. Uh, so yeah, a, a great piece that endless enigmas. And then when you have this middle with the sheriff, it kind of breaks the immersion. It just doesn't quite fit. Even though I I have some good things to say about the song, um, it has a really cool organ work by Keith Emerson. Um, but and, and there, there's this little piano bit at the end that sounds like some kind of wild wild west saloon music, you know, like if if you ever watched western films, there's always this piano player in the saloon playing a particular type of music, and and this sounds uh, quite like that. So it's a fun track. So, but I don't know. It kind of breaks the immersion. Would you say, would you say that it's that it sticks out like a sore thumb? No, not really, but it does stick out and not in a good way. Uh, even though it's not a bad song, it just it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, Hold Down is kind of similar, but it's a cover of Aaron Copland's uh, track from the ballet called Rodeo. Uh, and I don't know, this is, uh, this is also great instrumental workout, but it it's very much similar similar to the sheriff in tone. Uh, what I find fascinating about it is how how the band plays in perfect unison. You know how Palmer follows Keith Emerson and and Lake, and it's so precise. Again, I love how they play together. Their chemistry is second to none, in my opinion. So, uh, but let's get back to other tracks that make this record great. Uh, what about from the beginning? What did you think about that one? Can you remind me what was you know what was the thing about this track? It's it's kind of faded away from my memory. I don't know why. So uh, from the beginning is just like Lucky Man was like the pop track of the first record. I think from the beginning is the single here. It's the the most accessible song, also written by Greg Lake. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that again. It's Greg Lake that makes these these uh, mainstream tracks, so to say. What, what I like about it is how it opens with these very subtle acoustic guitar tones, and it's such a perfect intro. It it adds a lot of color to the song, some dark undertones, and then uh, the song uh, also has very subtle percussion work by Palmer. 
It's so atmospheric, at the same time very catchy, very dramatic in a sense, but it has that kind of quiet, uh, quiet suspense to it. You know, it's not so obvious, so conspicuous. The guitar solos again, a lake with the guitar work here, and a beautiful, beautiful understated guitar work, such lovely tone that he has on his guitar. And, and I've noticed this throughout their records. The guitar work is phenomenal, but it's so subtle. It's never overplayed. You know, he never overplays. And then you have Emerson with his Moog synth. Emerson, on the other hand, loves to overplay stuff, but I think he sounds awesome here. Um, so this is simpler and more accessible Agreed. than the previous tunes. And it's a perfect way for the uninitiated to get to know the band. And it's probably the reason why they have such great record sales. So if you if you don't know this band and you want to get to know their music, maybe the best tracks are from the beginning and A Lucky Man. Those tracks are very catchy, very easy to listen to, but also they, they uh, display the full depth of these guys' musicianship. So great tracks, I think. I absolutely agree because... This this record felt to me like a great starting point for, you know, getting to know this genre. Yeah, and I, and I think this record overall is much more accessible than Tarkus that I mentioned before. So I think a great way to start listening to this band is either to get this one or the first record. Uh, what about Trilogy, the title track? A very classy piano opening uh, it's just Lake on the vocals and Emerson on the piano it's so simple, beautiful well maybe it's not so simple because Emerson's playing has so many elements but it just sounds very elegant and the song is quite poignant it's Greg Lake basically saying goodbye to his love a breakup song um, and then Somewhere in the middle, Keith slowly starts incorporating synth sounds very subtly, very economically, until at one point all hell breaks loose and the band goes into this very, uh, very heavy, very intense instrumental section. It's, it's intense. Such a typical jazz thing. Yeah, but it's intense, but it's also restrained. And that's the thing that differentiates this kind of music from jazz. This still has a lot of structure and there is some restraint to it, which is not always the case with Emerson, Lake and Palmer. There's a lot of access to their music, something that I used to struggle with in the past, uh, which we will touch upon, especially on the next record. Uh, but I think when it comes to this record, it's so wonderfully played. I don't think there's a lot of access here. Uh, this song is a perfect example of that. So, Alexander, uh, what about the, the rest of the record? We have Living Sin, and we have... Evidence Bolero. Yeah, that you already mentioned. Anything else you would like to add? I just think that um, this record is, is absolutely a, a highlight, and it should be a pickup record for a lot of beginners when it comes to this music genre. And for that reason, you know, I am pretty much a beginner here, so... Um, I think I will go back to this. Uh, I'm pretty sure about it, and the previous record that we discussed uh, as well. Again, um, I, I kind of 
Yes, it, it is accessible, but I just don't know if I would say that that's a step forward. You asked, you asked me, you know, how do you think the band progressed? I don't think that this is uh, something new. I think they just uh, went in a slightly different direction. They just wanted to do it. Uh, it is not really a precise word, but this record is kind of more simple, but there is still... There's still this complex music and these improvisations. And I don't stuff, know if so. I would fully agree with you here because I don't think it's a simple record by any means. There's a lot of very complex music here, and I, I think what they yeah, added. That, that, I think uh, what they, that, that's that's what I think. Uh, you know, it, it's not simple, but it's it's maybe it's more structured. Maybe that's the better word here. Yeah, it is more structured, and that shows that the band has matured, right? While on the first record, it seemed like the band was kind of searching for their direction in a very spectacular way, don't get me wrong. But here, um, they, seem, they seem to know what they're doing, really. And that's why it comes across as more structured. At the same time, they add more color to it, more tones, more experimentation. You know, there are all these very subtle moments throughout the record, either with added sounds, with Emerson's experimentation with organ and synths. It's it's really great what they did here. And I think that what really makes this record special to me is how consistent it is. Uh, other than The Sheriff, which is not a bad tune, I think the whole record is extremely consistent. And that's something I would not say, and I know that some other fellow fans might crucify me for this, but I don't think Tarkas is as consistent because Tarkas has one very long title track, which is a masterpiece in every way. And then the other tracks do not strike me as as being as impressive as Tarkus or on the same level. Well, here, everything seems to be very even. And, and that's why I think I would highly recommend this record to beginners when it comes to Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yeah, absolutely agree. So, Vlada, what is your rating here and... What's your favorite track? So my rating here is uh, a 9, I would say. I know I was thinking between 9 and, point and, nine and 9.5, but I think I, I prefer the debut a bit more. And my favorite track here is, oof, that's a tough one. Is it Endless Enigma? Is it Trilogy? I guess Endless Enigma, I have to say, even though I'm not 100% convinced about it, because Trilogy is pretty much just as beautiful and uh, there's some other great tracks like Living Sin um, I don't know from the beginning aforementioned so let's say Endless Enigma for now alright fair fair ratings there so my standard track is The Notorious One The Sheriff and the rating interestingly enough is 8.5 um I still can't say that this record is better than the previous one, than uh, the debut record, but I just had a more fun time listening to it, and maybe that's just a temporary thing. So now you know, you know why I gave a higher rating uh, compared to the previous record. So Vlada, now moving on to the record called Brain Salad Surgery, a very interesting name, and. You've mentioned some interesting points earlier that we're going to discuss here, so I'll give the microphone to you now. All right, so this record is uh, somewhat controversial, 
by many considered the band's pinnacle, their best work, while some others uh, dismiss it as being too pretentious, too overboard. Um, I don't know. To me, uh, I used to be in that second camp for a long time. I liked the record, but I thought there was too much access, too much overplaying. But as I grew older, I, I started to like this more and more. And now, whenever I listen to it, it sounds very exciting, very fresh. And there's much great to be said about this record. But first, I want to touch upon the name that you mentioned, Brain Salad Surgery. Uh, so originally, uh, the band wanted to call the record Whip Some Skull On Ya, which is a euphemism for oral sex. Uh, however, uh, they decided <laughs> yes, they decided to go with this other phrase, brain salad surgery, which is also a euphemism for oral sex. Apparently, even though I haven't heard it before, it comes from from the song called "Right Place, Wrong Time" by the legendary Dr. John, one one of the best musicians of all time, if you ask me. And um, his lyric is, "I've been running, trying to get hang up in my mind." Got to give myself a little talking to this time. Just need a little brain salad surgery. Got to cure this insecurity. So that's the lyrics that inspired the band uh, to, to take this phrase as... I think our listeners title. will love this. Yeah, so uh, another interesting thing is the artwork here. So first I want to ask you, what did you think about the artwork, the record cover? Yes, I was when I was listening to the record on Spotify. I just uh, noticed how interesting the, the album artwork is. So it's a skull. Um, I don't know if this is a specific uh, tool or something. Maybe there's there's another word for it. But there's a skull. But the skull has a mouth that is human. You know, with with the skin, and it's kind of having this kiss posture so it, it, it's i don't know i don't know how to describe it but i can say that it's quite intriguing yes the the artwork is phenomenal here i think this is one of the most memorable covers that i've ever seen when it comes to rock music and um, i want to ask you one more thing um have you seen the film i mean i know some some of the viewers will be disgusted that i even asked you this question but i don't know young people these days they they don't know much about the past so i need to ask you have you seen the film <laughs> have you seen the film alien uh no no you've never seen alien but are you familiar with what i'm talking about yes i am yes i am but if you if you want to ask him about a specific scene there's no chance of me remembering it. <laughs> so you know that uh, the alien has a very specific design. It looks very dark and very menacing. And, and it was the same artist who designed the alien and this record cover, none other than the Swiss legend H.R. Giger, a phenomenal artist known for his very dark and bizarre work. And uh, this is one of his great record covers. He did several record covers for a number of different bands. And I think this one is very special, uh, very dark. You see this kind of... It has basically... This artwork consists of two parts. The, the external cover where you see the skull. And then you have this hole. You see inside there's a, there's a lady. And when you open it, you can see the actual face of this lady. And it looks like 
some kind of dead body. Maybe she's, um, I don't know, it has some kind of ancient Egypt uh, undertones, if you ask me. It looked like she sleeps peacefully or she might be dead. I don't know, but it's a very dark record cover and a great design. Definitely one of the most memorable record covers of the 70s. Uh, so another, another cool detail here. But now let's talk about music. So the record starts off the record starts off with Jerusalem. And um, Alexander, are you familiar with this tune? Jerusalem, have you heard it before in in a different context? Um I think oh it was it was a band that we discussed, you know, in one of our previous episodes. That's that's, you know, the association that I got, but I think we we had a band, yeah, Spirit. I think Spirit had some Jewish references. So is that kind of connected? Uh, not quite, but I, I ask you because, okay, we are we are not originally for from an English speaking world. So maybe people from outside the English speaking world would not get uh, what this song is. But this is an old English hymn, right? A very beautiful somewhat somewhat not somewhat but very religious song right many people thought that this song should be england's national anthem because as you know uh, the uk has the anthem god save the queen and the english also play god save the queen at their games their football games but uh, there were some thoughts at one point that they should play jerusalem instead and uh, so this song is very important in the British, uh, in the British culture, music culture particularly, but also in, in British literature, because the lyrics uh, were written, back then they were not lyrics, it was a poem written by William Blake, a fantastic uh, British poet who was very misunderstood during his life, but wrote phenomenal poems, very progressive for the time, very experimental. And Jerusalem is one of his most memorable, but also most accessible poems, I would say, that was embraced by the, the Brits, by the, English, uh, by the English public, and was performed as a church hymn many times. So this is a very interesting rendition of that. At the time, it was so controversial because this song meant so much to the English people that the, that the BBC actually banned the track. They didn't like this interpretation. They thought it was too far out. They might have even perceived it as a mockery. But Alexander, what did you think about this song? On the other hand, I thought it was a grand track and a great opener for... Uh kind of controversial record i would agree with your assumption there it is controversial but there's no question about the opening track here it's so grand it's so it's kind of dark in a way so i wouldn't i wouldn't consider it a mockery if you ask me it's it's a great it's a great of course uh, not version. but but it just shows you what the attitudes of the time were uh, towards rock music especially by older people who probably held this song in very high esteem as a church hymn so when they heard somebody doing this kind of very electrifying rendition, which I find absolutely beautiful, absolutely exquisite, especially the organ. There's this church organ sound. Uh, again, the band sounds so perfect together. 
everything falls into its place. A great opening track, a beautiful version of Jerusalem, beautiful uh, lyrics by William Blake, of course, very memorable uh, as a beginning. And then afterwards, uh, we have Toccata, uh, another cover of a classical piece by uh, the Argentinian composer Alberto Ginestra. Uh, so, Ginestera, I think, sorry. Uh, Albero Ginestera. So, what did you think about this piece, Toccata? How did that sound? How did that compare to these other classical pieces that we heard on the previous records? This is actually the part where the controvers controversy started for me. Um, it was clearly different from what you know I had heard previously from from this band. It kind of sticks out, and I can't say that I liked it because it sounded, as I said, different and not really accessible. I looked it up uh, later on and saw that it was uh, a cover of a classical so song, so maybe that's one of the reasons. But Takata is something that that sticks out, but I wouldn't say in a positive way if you you know if you take my taste into this account. Um, and then after Takata, you have two songs, two very short songs that. I think were used for the same reason as the sheriff on the previous record. Still, you turn me on, and Benny the Brownson sounded totally different. It sounded like a completely different record in my in my years. So, uh, yeah, Takata is where it all started, you know, Vlada. Um, I have to say about Takata first. Uh, when I was younger, I I kind of enjoyed it, but I was also a bit annoyed by this song. It sounded too abrasive to me. It sounded too excessive. Nowadays, when I listen to it, I really like it. I really like what Keith did with the song. However, there's that middle part where Carl Palmer goes into a solo, and there's some experimentation on his part there. He uses some kind of electronic drums that produce these very silly sounds. So that might be a bit off-putting. But other than that, I thought it was a great track. So I do like it. Uh, and I kind of agree with you that these first four tracks do sound very different from one another. Uh, Still You Turn Me On, I kind of feel you dismissed that one too lightly. That was a major hit here on this record. And I think, again, Greg Lake, uh, Greg Lake strikes with his great... Uh, pop sensibility. It's a beautiful love ballad. I I love the way it builds up. It's very intense, especially when he reaches this part before he, he sings Still You Turn Me On. It conveys the passion that he feels for his, his love, for his, uh, I don't know, this is uh, the kind of song you'd write for the love of your life, you know, and uh, and I love the way it sounds. I love everything about this song. I love the guitar work. It's a great showpiece for Greg Lake. Uh, there's absolutely nothing, nothing wrong about this track. And it's definitely one of the highlights here. But then, as you said... I, I didn't dismiss it, to be honest. I didn't dismiss it. Uh, I, I just thought that it kind of sounded totally different, you know, compared to, to its uh, predecessor. Um, but... Interestingly enough, it's one of my highlights, but we'll get to that. Yes, for sure. Um, 
it's one of the highlights. And then Benny the Bouncer is another one of those Wild West tracks. It makes zero sense being included here. And while I had a very favorable opinion about the Sheriff and Hoedown, despite the fact that they broke the immersion from the previous record, I think here this is a huge oversight on the part of the band, a completely needless <laughs> exercise in whimsy. It just it just makes zero sense, you know. It, it's it's okay, uh, like it's kind of fun. It was co-written by one of the founders of King Crimson, uh, Peter. Yeah, um, Peter Sinfield. Yeah, yep. but he was also the lyricist for King Crimson. He was never a band member. So Lake knew him, of course, and he wrote a lot of songs for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer as well. I mean, a lot of lyrics, that is, not music. So, yeah, um, I don't like it. I, I, I think it's okay, but it makes zero sense. And it could be easily done without. Maybe you should even exclude it while listening to the record. It's a bit sacrilegious to say that, but I don't know. Okay, and That's very harsh. <laughs> and then we have what is the, the centerpiece of this record, basically a record in itself, like one of the longest prog rock songs ever recorded, uh, almost half an hour long, Carnival, right? Um, on some CD editions, you will find it split into sections, uh, but I, uh, I had a CD where it was a single track, and uh, I don't know, this is probably the band's most well-known track. And um, Alexander, I want to ask you first, what did you think about this excessive piece of music? Okay, so now I'm going to say something and I, I just pray for not being heavily criticized by it. So um, on one hand, I think, you know, the instrumentation here was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you could hear a lot of stuff, also singing, don't want to exclude that. But to me, you mentioned how this record, you know, um, is considered to be a record that has a lot of overplaying. And I would say that at this point, I think this Carnival, uh, these Carnival tracks, that is, um, kind of display that. Now, I did like some parts. I think some parts were phenomenal, especially... Um, the drums and the guitar and there were some futuristic moments and the singing but this is where it gets problematic for me as a music listener and this is why I sometimes just can't get into prog rock you just get lost in all those improvisations and solos and stuff you, you can't say that they're bad but I just can't enjoy them as much it's a bit of an overkill even though I have to say um, my view of this album changed dramatically because of this track. At first, when I was younger, I thought it was an absolute overkill. I thought that it was too much, that uh, Emerson went overboard, that he had no restraint, unlike those other records that we talked about. This is a, a, a very different approach, in my opinion. However, uh, as the time went on, I, I started really enjoying this because it has so many great music moments, right? This is a, a very big piece, very ambitious, very pretentious, which might be the issue, but it's also one of its fortes. It has uh, three different impressions. 
and it has a sort of a dystopian theme. You know, it's about this futuristic world, dystopian, where like uh, there's a special kind of exhibition where people can see the things from the old days, including the like, blades of grass, which apparently are sensational in this horrible dystopian future. And um, while the song does get a bit repetitive in parts, especially that main melody that goes throughout the song. There's so many interesting sections that go from, you know, this kind of crazy organ uh, instrumental work to, to more jazzy parts. At one point, Keith Emerson even quotes uh, Sonny Rollins, which sounded amazing. And there's some piano work. And, and I think you're right to point out the guitar work, that there are some parts where Greg Lake comes in with the guitar and it just sounds so mesmerizing. I really, really love those parts. So overall, I, I do enjoy it a lot. I think it's a great piece of work. I do feel that it's a bit excessive. However, it's, it's the band's most iconic song, and it is for a good reason their most iconic song. I think that it's very catchy despite its length. The main melody is extremely catchy, and there's this thing, uh, th this uh, lyric where they say, welcome to the show that never ends, and that became kind of a, a trademark of sorts for them. You know, there's even a, a record, I think, a live record with that name. Th I, here's the thing about this record. Okay, so step by step. Jerusalem, it's a short track, it's very good. Then Tokata which is much longer and has a different vibe. And then you have Stilia Turn Me On and Benny the Bouncer that kind of killed that previous atmosphere. And once they finish, you have this super long trick. I mean, that's probably, uh, you know, I can even say that this record almost sounded like a compilation. I kind of agree with you. I think that uh, Carnival in itself is like a, record like you could listen to it as a separate piece from these other songs i still like the record a lot i don't think it has a lot of weaknesses i think the main problem is benny the bouncer but you can easily skip over that that's only like three minutes or something like that uh, carnival minutes. i th yeah. think is a great track but that's the track that makes or breaks the record it's whether you like Carnival or not that will determine how you view this record. Because everything else, I think, is pretty much in line with what the band did before. Jerusalem is beautiful. So is uh, Still You Turn Me On. Uh, so, yeah, Carnival is the one track that really, really makes people so polarized about it. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. I, I don't know what else to add other than, the, uh, other than that... Carnival has to be experienced. You know, you can't really describe it so easily. It's a it's a long piece with three impressions, a lot of different musical ideas. Um, there is a bit of whimsy to it as well, a bit of tongue-in-cheek kind of approach that only the English seem to be capable of in their music. And I like that the band likes to incorporate whimsy, that they don't take themselves that seriously. However, it does backfire sometimes. That uh, we saw that with ba Benny the Bouncer. Uh, any final <laughs> words, Alexander? Uh, uh, I want to use one of your favorite um, phrases. It needs time to sink in. 
I think that's my final word about this record. For sure, and it took me years for this to fully sink in. And I always liked Jerusalem and Still You Turn Me On, but I did have a lot of problems with the rest of the record. Nowadays, I really admire this record. I, I enjoyed it immensely when I listened to it, but perhaps it was my familiarity with it that make, makes it easier for me to enjoy it now. Maybe it takes some time for some listeners, maybe it does not. This was a hugely popular record at its time. So it really depends on the listener at the end of the day. Uh, so without any further ado, let's go to the ratings. Alexander, what do you think? Okay, I'm now going to shock the whole world and probably some of our listeners. They will probably stop listening to this show after my rating. Uh, I will probably get some, get some stick from my friend Vlada. So my rating is a 7. A 7 out of 10, and the favorite track is uh, Still, You Turn Me On. All right. Um, okay, I understand that, because for a long time I didn't think that highly of this record. However, here I'll give it, I'll give it a 9. I really like it a lot. I think it's a phenomenal record in many ways. Carnival is a masterpiece in its own right, despite all the access that follows it. But I would not advise the beginners, the uninitiated, to start listening to the band with this record. I think it might put them off. Um, I feel that Trilogy or the first record or even Tarkus are much better. So take a listen to those records. If you like them, you will probably enjoy Brain Salad Surgery. But be aware of the fact that this record is kind of mired in access. And I think this is what gave prog rock a bad name. And this is why all those punkers came in and started dissing prog rock while simultaneously secretly listening to all these records at home. You know, if you checked Johnny Rotten's record collection, I bet you'd find quite a few Pink Floyd, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes records there. What do you think, Alexander? <laughs> well, um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of punk music and post-punk and all of that stuff and i don't listen secretly to this stuff but i have to say that some of these records uh, really um you know really really made me think again and i enjoyed them and i think i will go back to them and just see if there are some traces of prog rock in my in my musical taste so uh, vlad i would like to thank you for picking this band today and you know shedding some light on on the prog rock genre because we haven't really discussed a lot on the show uh, this kind of music so it it, it was definitely um, important and and exciting I'm, I'm sure we will attract more fans and you know uh, the irony is that prog rock is known for this overblown and long pieces and this is one of our longest episodes i think as well because it takes a lot of time to talk about this music given all the elements that are involved and perhaps emerson lake and palmer as a band had a lot to say and dear listeners if you're a fan of emerson lake and palmer we want to hear from you we want to hear your views whether you agree with us or not but if you don't know them we still strongly encourage you to check out their output i think you will be pleased some of these records deserve to be heard by everyone all right so alexander i'll leave it to you 
Okay, Vlada, thanks a lot for this great chat. And uh, guys, thanks again for listening to us. I don't know the length of this episode at this point. I'm probably, uh, we are probably at 50 plus minutes, I think, or even more, probably more. So uh, thanks again. 70, okay. <laughs> 69 to be precise. Okay. But so with editing, it will go down to like 65 or something. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see, but I'm sure that the audience will love uh, our our chat. So uh, I would also like to encourage you guys to join our discussion group on Facebook. If you don't want to leave public comments, if you want to keep that um, privacy, you can join the group because the group consists of our... Uh, biggest fans, uh, some of the people that regularly listen to our show, we can all, you know, gather and discuss um, the bands and the episodes themselves. So thanks again. You can follow our social media. The The handle is Sunrise Pod. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And uh, we would also appreciate your financial support on Patreon. Uh, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. So uh, stay safe, uh, enjoy the episode, and we'll see you in two weeks. Write a review, and then you can share it. With the world. In any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y.